In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Aliens disguise themselves as raccoons. Why not? They're already wearing masks. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. Harold Egan saw gnomes and gnome chopsticks. Coincidence? Anything goes at Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. Don't change that dial. You're listening to Paratopia. 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 On UPRN 105.3 New Orleans. Oh my god, Paratopia. I have uh, with me a very, very special guest and a good friend. His name is Harold E. Gilm. You may remember him as our roving reporter at Culture of Contact. Um, he is a reporter for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. He is the founder and director of Space, the search project for aspects of close encounters. Say that ten times fast. Um, editor of two online newsletters, Close Encounters News and Spaceship Gaia Explorer Journal, and a whole bunch of other stuff. <laughs> right, Harold? That's right. <laughs> you worked for uh, the New York City Space Council. Society. Also the National Space Society. National Space Society, and you were a speechwriter. That's interesting. Yeah, I did speechwriting for a city councilman oh, about five years ago. Huh. Yeah. So you're a big, important New York kind of guy. Well, I don't consider myself important, but I've been involved in things for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but you're also an experiencer and one of the few who's willing to oh, step yeah. forward and actually talk about all of the high strangeness stuff that happens to you, and that's... Sort of why I've uh, really been looking forward to this episode, uh, because I feel like you and Jeff Ritzman um, have, uh, in some ways, very similar stories, um, but you come at it from a different angle, and mm-hmm. I want to I sort of get at that. I want to know why that is. I want to know how that is. Um, so first, why don't you just give us a little sort of overview of, well, give me your childhood story. That's always a tearjerker. Uh, childhood story. Um when I was uh, 13, I saw two UFOs. I was had, had my telescope, and I was living in Irvington, New Jersey. And uh, uh, they were unusual objects. One was a disc that back and forth, and another was a uh, what looked like a meteor that but that stopped in midair and gradually moved off. So I reported that to uh, some of my friends in the schoolyard. But the rumors got around. I saw little green men. And the place, and they, they, I was mobbed after a few days. And the uh, principal called a special session of the uh, assembly. I was hidden, locked into the principal's office and alone. And while well, he explained to uh, the students that the UFOs don't exist, they're misinterpretations of natural phenomena. And then he came back to the office. My mother came and he told me I'm being suspended from school for the rest of the year, about two months. That had a powerful effect. And, and uh, so what did your parents say to you about this? Well, the, uh, they sent me to a, a school psychiatrist. 
And the psychiatrist suggested to them that they throw out all my astronomy books, which I had. I had advanced astronomy books, uh, plus the UFO books. I throw them to the garbage, which they did, including my telescope and my uh, childhood uh, planetarium. So. so you showed them by becoming an abductee. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. So, what was the what was next for you in terms of this experience? What was the, sort of the wake up call that, that that this was a going to be a pattern in your life and not just a one off UFO sighting? Uh, December fifth, nineteen seventy two. I was living in a house with other people in West Orange, New Jersey, in forty acres of woods. And three o'clock in the morning, I woke up, and it was three o'clock. So I could see it on my clock. And uh, I was paralyzed. I couldn't move, but I could move my eyes. I tried to move. And then I shook myself out of that. And there's a blue light in the room and a blue light outside. And I immediately went to sleep. Next thing I knew, it was 12 noon. I missed going into work. Um, I was nauseous, the worst nauseousness that I've ever had. And I thought it was an out-of-body experience. I made no connection to UFOs. And a similar experience happened uh, in uh, June of 1986 when I was on um, vacation at a place, a co- uh, actually a cabin in the uh, Hudson Valley. The same thing happened. Uh, and then I began wondering. That's when I assumed after that I wrote Whitley and uh, Bud Hopkins. Hmm. And uh, who responded? What did they say? Uh, Whitley re- responded, actually. Um, you know, his wife responded. And they found it interesting, and if there's a support group forming, I will be, I will be called. But Hawkins had to trail for about a year, and he finally referred me to Dr. Gene Monday, the late job, Dr. Gene Monday, a psychiatrist here in New York, uh, who had worked at the uh, uh, hospital for 20 years, and also Long Island University, did the evaluations at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I had sessions with her, I'd have 25 sessions, half involving hypnosis. Um, so what, what, what unfolded from hypnosis? Well, we went back to that uh, first incident and I was taken out, uh, into the woods, into the meadow in the woods and taken up into a, a dark craft and into a room, into an easy, what I could describe as an easy chair. And, uh, these, uh, big headed, uh, big eyed people came into the room. One who I, I seem to know, no, I don't, I don't think I did, but it seemed like that. And next thing I knew, that was the end of it. No examination as far as I know. Hmm. But I had a car accident two weeks before. I wasn't injured. My car was totaled. And Dr. Gene Mundy felt that they uh, came to check into my psychological state. Hmm. Uh, well, let me ask you. Now, we, you know, we, t- we talk about hypnosis a lot on this show, and we sort of... Um, Jeff, probably slightly more so than, than me, but I'm leaning that way, uh, mm-hmm. the way of thinking that hypnosis is actually bad, mm-hmm. uh, that we don't know what it does. We don't know if hypnotically retrieved memories no. are real or mm-hmm. not. You know, the hypnotist can lead the patient, et cetera, et cetera. You know all this. No. Uh, what is your take on hypnosis having gone through it? Well, when the space group was formed in March 1962, we formed a support group. And from then on, I began meeting people referred to me and I would just sit with him in a coffee shop, no hypnosis or anything involved, and just relax and uh, talk with him about their experience and let them do the talking, of course. And things began camp, usually came out as we began relaxing over coffee or a meal and, and began talking. So I found that uh, technique very valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, did you find, do you, 
Do you find that the, the memories that you retrieved under hypnosis uh, felt like real memories, every bit as real as... Oh, I, no, no, no. I told Dr. Gene Monday I don't believe it is sounds too much like the typical scene. I knew something happened back then, but I think this is a, misinterp- a misinterpretation of what actually occurred. What actually occurred was probably something quite different. Huh. Well, that's interesting. What What is it that you... Do you even have a suspicion about what occurred? Well, I knew something happened that night, of course, and it happened again, of course, uh, 14 years later. So I, I was curious about what really happened, so I took it from there. Hmm. How, how, how do you take it from there? Well, in um, August of 1988, I decided that I want to see these things for them by myself, with my own eyes. And I knew there were a lot of sightings in Hudson Valley in the 1980s. And uh, I went up with a friend. We stayed over the weekend, Friday through uh, Sunday, at, a, at the a house of a uh, publisher then, of Isaac Asimov's books, one of the publishers. And the first night out, we found this uh, reservoir, Croton Falls Reservoir in Brewster, and Reservoir Road, and I was too scared that night. It was scary. I didn't want to see anything. The next night, we went out around midnight, my friend was a psychic, and I didn't really trust, you know, psychic stuff. You know, I think natural things do happen, naturally. And I walked away from her, and I looked out towards the woods and the reservoir, and I saw five glowing, what looked like five uh, uh, sets of glowing eyes. I could see the large heads easily, even though it was not, um, you know, it was bright enough, ambient light. I couldn't see anything further, and they were they were staring at me. And I said to my friend, come over here. And she said, oh, my God. And uh, I saw shine my flashlight, a very powerful flashlight, at them. And after that, as I did that, uh, a dog was coming down the road, a black dog. And I went into the, um, we both went into the car because we were scared of the dog. And she kind of slept for the past, for that hour, I kind of relaxed. I did see a bunch of raccoons parade by, uh, their eyes glowing, which is not unusual raccoon eyes to do, but it was like a, a parade of raccoons in an order, single file. And uh, I told, uh, then from that, uh, I had confirmation that these beings do exist, whether the, what, what I saw had any connection with me, I did not know. So there was a UFO conference um, in October 1988 in, in a place called the Hollywood Club, uh, organized by uh, Mike Lugman, and Bud Hopkins was there, and Phil Imbrogno was there. So we went up to Phil Imbrogno, and we showed him where we were. He said, did you know that two abductions occurred in that area, and one in 1987 and a lone abduction uh, around that time? And I said, no. Did you know there's a stone chamber, an ancient stone chamber, which seems to be an attractive attraction for UFOs? And I said, no. So he filled me in on that, and so he gave me some credence to the site as being a, an active site, and we just happened to pick it. Hmm. I found that very intriguing. Well, were you, you know, when, you, hmm, when you're seeing raccoons and you're thinking, okay, this, this single-file raccoons uh, are, might be something else, might be aliens or might be whatever, um, what sort of state of mind are you in at that point? Oh, I was pretty relaxed. And uh, I told Dr. Jean Monday that. She said they weren't raccoons. And I said, they look like raccoons to me, and that's what I say they are. I'm more convinced of what I saw. So nothing happened, as far as I know, during that hour before we drove off. Hmm. So... Um, and have hard to you, convince me of certain things. <laughs> have you ever seen 
um, the actual beings, and have have you ever seen them actually sort of shape shift into animals? Well, that's the uh, no, not, not exactly. Uh, this led eventually to the founding of space. Uh, Dr. Gene Monday referred people to me beginning in 1989. Uh, there were also two Whitley Strieber support groups, and I began two meetings on the Whitley Strieber support group in New York. And I went to that, and I made friends with some people there, and she began referring people on her own that she was involved with to me. And I would just meet with them in a coffee shop or in their home and let them talk. So because they hadn't talked with anybody about this except for Dr. Gene Monday. So it was the genesis of the space group. And it was in um, in February in uh, 1999, I decided, let's form the space group. I contacted the uh, New York uh, secretary of the Whitley Strieber Support Group, which was dissolved at the end of 1989. And she contacted people on the list. I contacted people I knew, and we had the first meeting on uh, West 20, East 27th Street. And uh, Whitley Strieber showed up, and uh, about 15 other people showed up. And from that, we began thinking, and someone said that she had a vision uh, before she came of a stone chamber, which she was unaware of, and uh, it was up north, Mountain Valley. So that was interesting, but I, I was so nervous during that meeting because I never did this before, and I was the one who spoke the least. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, because it's a big step. And uh, eventually decided to have uh, what we call the way teams, that really started going up in uh, 1992, 1993, to we usually rented a car or took the uh, Metro North and met some people from Connecticut, MUFON, and we'd go out. And that's where things began happening. And uh, I have to backtrack on this. I forgot completely what happened in, uh, on May 27, 1991, before space was formed. And uh, two people from Dr. Gene Monday, one from Dr. Gene Monday's group, uh, you know, Dr. Gene Monday's referral, and one from Bud Hopkins' support group, and somebody else, we all decided to go up to that magnetic mine road in Brewster near the reservoir. And I didn't expect anything to happen, but things began happening. Uh, there was kind of like electrical feelings and stuff, which were kind of dismissed. And then uh, it, it spooked out, this whole thing spooked out the... Uh, woman from the uh, Bud Hopkins support group. She went to the car with this older guy. And we be, we saw in front of us, this other guy and I, 50 feet in front of us, what looked like the, uh, oh, an outline, a white outline of a flying saucer. We saw that clearly. And inside that, these uh, shadows began forming, anywhere from 10 feet to 4 or 5 feet. And we saw that happening. Then we heard a scream from the car, and the woman in the car said that uh, uh, she had seen three beings walking in lockstep towards the car. And when she screamed, they disappeared. We couldn't see that because we were looking at what we were looking. And she said, look, there are two orange orbs out in the woods. that have been staring at all this. So I looked at B. There were two actually rectangular orange effects out in the woods just near the road. And they disappeared. Uh, we decided to go back, two of us to the road, and we began seeing these beings again. They were moving towards the side of the road. They took a different shape. Uh, they looked like they were wearing hoods and robes, and uh, were moving down the road. A car started driving up. It's rare that a car comes up there. And they faded into the ground. Next thing, they appeared up in the trees, moving along, floating in the trees, and went into um, uh, this outcropping of rock. 
near the stone chamber. And these, uh, we've also all these shapes begin to form for about five minutes inside the over, I mean, outside the uh, rock outcropping. And then the beings came out again, and I had a feeling to go over there. My friend was too scared, but I decided to go all over. And as I did, I passed. I felt what I call a wall of emotion, every type of emotion you can think of, from fear to the best emotions. And I walked over there, and they disappeared to my sight. But he said he could see them. And uh, eventually, I did see uh, one of them, at least their head, uh, the head of one of them. But I wasn't convinced that I was really. <laughs> I thought they just disappeared. But he, he said they're they're there. So. And then the guy from the car, the older guy, came up, and by that time, the incident had dissipated, and we went to his house to stay the night. Hmm. So when, yeah. yes? No, go ahead. So when space formed, we began forming these space away teams. Uh, usually we rented a van, shipped in the money, and we'd go out to the road, and uh, we began seeing things. Sometimes we'd see these lights in the sky that would stop and maneuver. They were high up, uh, apparently high up. And we found that interesting because Life Magazine in 1966 sent a team of photographers from Kodak to that reservoir and photographed the very same thing but in infrared light. And they actually things, photographed things coming out of the water, the reservoir. We saw this. And uh, so on May 27th, uh, 1993, we had 14 people up there. And some people meditated, which I do personally, but I don't do it as a group. Uh, so uh, uh, they they asked. We're seeing a lot of lights moving in the sky, uh, in tandem and all that. And they asked if the, the, the lights would form a triangular, a triangle, a perfect triangle. And I said, well, we'll see. And after they broke up their meditation, out of the uh, southwest, these three lights flew together. They formed in the western sky a perfect uh, triangle, and stood in that and for a little while, stood in that way for a little while, and and zoomed off to the, uh, the area of the Milky Way where they disappeared. Hmm. Would you say that you were uh, in the same state of consciousness as a normal state, or or is there any sort of, I don't know, other feeling involved uh, in the um, midst of this? Uh, my usual state of consciousness, but uh, my consciousness is always working in different levels. I learned that from, from a long time ago, before all this happened. So... And you've also had um, sort of poltergeist-type activity happen around you, right? Uh, kind of, but I didn't really give that too much uh, credence. Well, let's but give it credence. Well, it, yeah. I mean, you, when last we spoke, you had told me about uh, someone walking through a wall. Oh, yes, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain I that think to that's, us? I'm trying to think when that happened. I'm not sure. I can't recall right now, unfortunately. Well, it's all the same to us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, so many things have happened. So yeah. Well, what what happened when that? Well, just give give us that, and just give me your. Oh, the wall. Reaction. The the wall. The wall is different. In uh, the wall is different. I did see something go through a wall. In um, um, May of nineteen, or April of nineteen seventy-two, I was living in a house in East Orange, New Jersey, not out in the woods, but in an urban area. And I woke up during the night. It was raining quite a bit. I looked in the driveway, and I saw this woman wearing a white dress and long white hair walking in the driveway. I said, who's that? It's not the people who live in the house. And she was carrying a candle, which was burning despite the rain. So I looked at the other window, and she was heading towards the back door, but she didn't go through the back door. She went through the wall. That kind of 
got me shaking. Okay, I thought it was shaking. a ghost, of course. Okay, yeah. so so did that scared you? Uh, apparently, it was a. It seemed like a ghost to me, but I wasn't sure. But right. that woman w- would appear later on in uh, the house in West Orange, where we had a lot of strange things happen to people up there. They heard voices and laughter where there was nobody out there. Other people experienced that. And we kind of dismissed it as to ghost activity because the, the area has a uh, history. It was the home of former Governor McClellan, mm-hmm. John McClellan, who ran in 19, 1864 against Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And we lived in the servant's cottage, the, uh, but it was quite a, a, an area. And uh, we had a New Year's Eve party starting launching 1973. And one of the guys stayed over. He didn't go home. He was too tired. He was sleeping downstairs on the couch. And when I woke in the morning, I slept very well. He, uh, he came up to me and said, what, who's that woman you came in with last, last night? Really? I don't, that didn't happen. Not at all. No, 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 no. There was this woman in a white dress and long white hair coming through the front door, pushing you upstairs, and you were kind of in a daze. No, it really happened. I saw that. I wasn't dreaming or anything. insisted, so I believed him, even though I don't remember anything like that myself. I knew I just slept very well that night. So, all right. So, how do you process all of this? What What do you make of it? And were you ever fearful of it? Well, you not really that fearful. It's a little scary, and sometimes in Brewster, you never know what happens. We saw some other things, like these shadow people um, up there, uh, at least on two occasions, and some other uh, phenomena. And uh, so that was kind of a little scary. What's a shadow person? What's the difference between a shadow person and? Well, we one time we were up there. Uh, people were doing a meditation. I wasn't doing the meditation, but I was standing in a circle, so I opened my eyes and looked towards down the road, and I saw what looked like two human shadows, perfectly human-formed, one standing up, one kneeling, looking at us, looking in our direction, concealing any features. And another time when we were up there, I saw this shadow figure uh, running down the road, but in the air, and jump into the woods. So there are various things I've seen and other people have seen up there. But just seeing them doesn't frighten you? No, it's kind of a little spooky, but they didn't threaten. There's no threat to them. So, well, I'm, but, trying to, uh, I'm trying to get it at why it's, some people are, are scared to death of this stuff and why oh, some yeah. aren't. So I'm trying to figure this out here. Yeah, in like, our You've group, heard me talk about my experiences as if, you know, you, you realize that these beings could eat your soul. If, you know, you immediately know mm-hmm. you have one and they could eat it if they wanted to. You know, that's sort of my take on it. Uh, not yeah. that they would, but there's it's no. that type of fear. So, But you're not experiencing that type of fear. Not that type of fear. In fact, uh, the, uh, one time when I saw Dr. John Mack in the year 2000 at the uh, IFS conference, IFS Intruders conference in the Queen's Hall of Science, um, he noticed I was a little nervous. And we went had lunch together and up there, out there, and uh, he began talking with me, and he said, every time you have an experience... And it bothers you, not in a fearful way, but it bothers you. You don't know what to do. To, uh, you always take the next step. You integrate it into your life. He said he's seen that before. I've known him since 1995, 1994, actually. And he said he's noticed that. So I integrate the experience, but I go through stages of, uh, of integration. Hmm. And how does how does that work? What would that be, entail? Uh, just I accept what happened. I question it. Because I always question anything, and of course, a reporter. But uh, I integrate it into my life. Whatever happens next, it happens. And we'll see what happens after that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know where to start. <laughs> uh, let me go back to, to the 1972, to the very uh, start for you, or one of the very start starting points for you. Sure. Aside from the phenomena, aside from anything paranormal going on, what was what was going on in your general life uh, about the time that this phenomena started? I just finished college uh, uh, a few years before. Mm-hmm. And I was working, and uh, I was an activist. I was a peace activist, activist. In the 1960s, I was drafted, and I came out against the war while I was in the Army. And, of course, they were going to court-martial me, but I insisted that the war was illegal and, and wrong and immoral. And they threatened me with court-martial, but it got publicity across the country, including national television, which I didn't expect. And the ACLU came in a case, and they wanted to... Uh, have a trial uh, outside the military on, on the issue of habeas corpus mm. get, uh, against my will. Uh, that got me into activism because uh, shortly after that, uh, about a year after that, I really got involved in the peace movement and um, often the leadership role in New Jersey. So and that was still going on in um, early 1972 and into 1972, I should say. Right. So you would say that uh, your life was in a bit of uh, upheaval. <laughs> Uh, of sorts during that during that time, um, or really. definite or definite uh, uh, stress. Uh, not really. There's no stress involved. I was very happy to be doing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. It seemed to have an impact. We had the uh, state legislature legislature uh, pass a, uh, a resolution against the war in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So it was a matter of activism, and uh, that was all happening. But there's no, no stress at all. Hmm. We've, we've, and I'm not sure if you've listened to the show or not, or how much you have. But uh, uh, either way, I think uh, Jeremy, didn't you have George Hansen on Culture Contact? Uh, no, no. Oh, I you did. I didn't know him back then. Oh, okay. Do you know George well, Hansen? Yeah, I do because I met met him a few times at the uh, New Jersey UFO conference. Okay. Conferences. I actually spoke there one twice. Because hmm. um, you know, I think. George has talked extensively on our show about how paranormal events seem to coincide or go hand in hand with some sort of definite change in your everyday routine or um, uh, very stressful times or times of, I don't know, pinnacle changes in your life that Mm -hmm. these same things, things seem to manifest within that time period or be more prevalent during that time period. Do you find that to be at all? The case for yourself? Uh, not really. The uh, The only time anything close to that happened was in the beginning of 1992. Here I was meeting people, uh, uh, had my own experiences, of course, and what do you do with this? So mm-hmm. that caused me a lot of stress mm-hmm. uh, because I was very nervous about what to do with that, and that's when uh, the decision was reached to form the uh, space support group, which went mo- monthly for through the 90s. Do you feel that when you actively went out to search these things out or, or investigate any certain area that uh, things seem to ramp up for you in that direction? Uh, not really. We're used to, uh, I think, the objective viewpoint of what's happening mostly, most of the times. And we just reported on uh, what happened and observed and did things like that. At least I did. We've right. had people go up there who actually got spooked and scared and said, uh, 
I want to go home. And, of course, that comes first, so we took him home right away. So other right people a few in times. the group were scared, but you weren't. Well, just a few people. It only happened a few times. Because right. we've had uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of people over there up there over the years, and most felt comfortable. And some people went on their own uh, and had experiences. Well, mm. I know Cozy Gilbert, you know, he came on mm. our show, and he was one of the people with you at one of your uh, sightings, and he was completely terrified. He was, because that was, we're doing a, uh, an experiment with uh, Colin Andrews, who I'd met, uh, we met a few months before. And uh, on the uh, night, uh, it was July, we were in uh, Brewster, in a meadow, actually, and Colin Andrews and his team were in the, uh, in the middle of Stonehenge. So uh, we felt that we should move down to Magnetic Mine Road, Lower Magnetic Mine Road, which is an open area. And uh, when we got down there, we just shoot the breeze, you know, just walking. Got three cars down there. Um, and then all of a sudden, we heard a, a lot of steps walking, come, coming towards us. It was like a lot of people walking towards us. So what's that? It was under the canopy of trees that covered that portion of the road. And as we walked towards them, the, uh, the sounds had stopped. Then they resumed. That happened a couple of, two or three times. And then all of a sudden, Posey said, Oh, he shouted, actually. I said, next to him, my ears, really. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he shouted, and he said, they're there, I know, because when, they were, when I was six years old, this is exactly how I felt. And uh, so our attention turned to him. We just thought what we're doing with this phenomenon, because people come first. And he was really shaking. And, uh, and that sort of reminded him, because he knew they were there. And that's about the extent of it. He went home. Actually, rode the subway home from uh, Manhattan. And uh, he called me early in the morning. And he said he had an experience not to be afraid. He came into his apartment. And there was this crystal rabbit-type uh, thing on a string in his room, which he said, I had no idea how that got there. But scared as a rabbit. He thought of that immediately. And he said, maybe I shouldn't have been so scared. Maybe this is a message. Uh, it's always hard to say what these things in, but are, but that's the impression he got. So, right, and then we call uh, Colin Andrews called a few days later from England, and they had an experience over there of uh, an oblong, strange oblong cloud which hovered over the um, Stonehenge. And actually, someone during the course of that started screaming, and he didn't know why he was screaming. He had no idea at all. He wasn't afraid or anything. It just came out of nowhere. And the screaming uh, was parallel to what Posey did, <laughs> which I find in interesting. So do you, hmm, do you think that these events could take place anywhere, or does it, does it have to be at the occult center of, like, you know, druid lore? Oh, they can happen anywhere. They can happen in Disneyland. They can happen uh, in a room, in one's apartment, in one's house. And actually, tell um, this anecdote, because, I, I don't know, I found it fascinating. This wasn't long ago that a boy came up to you in a restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, why don't you uh, tell Jeff that story? Yeah, I don't recall the thing about the boy in the restaurant. I do recall something in 1977. I was coming home from work. I worked in Livingston, Livingston New Jersey at that time. I was on a bus, and this uh, young uh, black man was getting off the uh, bus. And he looked at me directly in the eye, and he said, you will be a leader in space. And I said, no, 
I know what he meant by that. At that moment, a Star Trek moving van uh, truck passed by, and they had a Star Trek moving company at that time, at that very moment. So that's probably what you're referring to. No, I didn't know about that. I was referring to the, the kid who comes up to you in a restaurant and says, I've got a story to tell you. You look like the type of guy I could tell. Oh, that's the uh, teenager at uh, the Flying Saucer Cafe in uh, downtown Brooklyn. And he came up to me uh, about 16, maybe 17. He came up to me as I have a story to tell. And he told me that uh, his experience involved music. When he has an experience, he hears music that is nothing that he heard before. And he asked me what it was. And I said, well, other people, a few other people have reported music. I've experienced that. And other people have experienced a strange music, which are usually very beautiful. And he said, it is. And he wondered if that was any part of the phenomenon. Right. But why did he come up to you? Well, we had a, uh, uh, a public seminar there in the Flying Saucer uh, uh, Cafe. and oh, uh, we, Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was so we, we had actually two seminars there. We had one where a few people came to speak about their experiences, and the people who ran the Flying Saucer Cafe, or at least the, the, uh, the man and his wife, the man had a sighting of a UFO in, in Ireland, which kind of convinced them it was so strange. So they named it the Flying Saucer Cafe, but we had a, a seminar, and then the next summer we had a, uh, or that summer we actually had a film series, too. Okay. And now, and now for the... For the, 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 the grand story that, that I, I would love for Jeff to hear, just to uh-huh. see if his head explodes. Uh, gnomes? Gnomes I haven't seen, but two people have. Wait, no, 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 you, Didn't you see gnomes going, marching along in Jersey? Oh, yeah, there's so much that's happened, yes. That was, not, that was May 1st, night of May 1st, 1970. A uh, bunch of us decided to go up to uh, South Mountain Re- Reservation in West Orange, New Jersey, West Orange, Milburn, New Jersey, and we had to camp out just to enjoy ourselves. And around midnight, um, we heard some noise, a lot of noise, and they said, let's get out of here. We don't like this. Maybe somebody here is up to no good. So everybody fled. I was behind them, and I paused because I saw something moving out of the corner of my eye, we were over a res- not a reservoir, a waterfall. Uh, it's not very high, maybe about 50 feet or 40 feet or 30 feet, something like that. And there's a stream at the bottom and a little footbridge. And I saw what looked like gnomes with the pointed hats and carrying uh, lanterns walking straight ahead in single file towards the uh, waterfall. And I said, oh, boy, they're real. <laughs> And uh, I always thought they were part of mythology, but um, here I was seeing them myself. And I looked towards my uh, my right, and there was a black horse and a rider dressed all in black uh, on top of it. And the horse had these glowing eyes staring at me. That scared me. And I ran down the path to the parking lot where the car was, and I arrived before the people who left, who took the same path, uh, arrived before them. How is that so, possible? I don't know. <laughs> How do you have an experience with gnomes and a you know hobbit-looking evil horse dude and not immediately think you're crazy? Did you ever think, my God, I'm going crazy? No, because I actually saw this. <laughs> That's about the best answer I could I could hear. <laughs> I'm not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I saw it. What are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a professional reporter. Right. So. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. Do you think did you get? Yeah. I have to ask. Did you get rid of the ring after that? Or I, I'm sorry, I had to just say that. I'm sorry. 
do you, do you when, when these events happen to you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you and you visually see these things. Um, do they seem? I mean, let's let's go with the uh, uh, the beings that that you saw uh, kind of materialize in the road and then walk mm-hmm. towards one of these uh, stone structures. Um, do they seem more like apparition to you or more like solid to you? Well, sometimes they're solid. Sometimes they seem solid. Sometimes apparitional. Uh, like, for instance, uh, these two guys who went up to the uh, Brewster area the week, uh, week before, we, we all did, the three of us did, uh, claimed they saw these uh, shadow figures appearing in front of a tree. They would just appear in front of the tree and disappear when they passed by the tree. Mm-hmm. And they heard footsteps and all that. So I said, well, take me to the area. And they did. I didn't expect to see anything. We did see one of these uh, ephemeral uh, figures pass in front of the tree, only it was white. Mm. It only appeared in front, of the, it was in front of the tree and moved out as soon as it right out of vision. Are these usually extraordinarily fleeting, or are they... Oh, yes, or, or definitely. Very fleeting. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I'm not sure how much of, of what I've told Jeremy and, and the world by now... Uh, but I have seen, I guess, what, what people call the typical gray um, mm-hmm, right. in, a, in a daytime setting. Right. Um, actually, more like a, a garage slash warehouse type of setting where this thing was. I noticed when you mentioned that they were walking through the trees or up mm-hmm. in the trees, moving about, um, which reminded me of, of, and I'm curious if you find any, any parallels with yourself in this that uh, for a long time I saw, and it's, it's very hard to explain visually. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I could probably Photoshop something to make it look like what I'm trying to get across. But Mm -hmm. um, if you happen to, I mean, for the exercise for people listening at home, if you stare at a a white wall, uh, Mm -hmm. you'll eventually start to see small particles moving about on that wall. Um, well, I began to see very tight patterns in the house, outside the house. Uh, in, mm-hmm. in, I used to live in a condominium. I saw them a lot there. Uh, these these tight patterns seemed to form an arc uh, in the air that would essentially move back and forth or mm-hmm. uh, kind of uh, scoot through the room very quickly, right. which sometimes would produce flashes. And, and I... I more or less at the time told my research partner that I was seeing these things. I said, I don't know if it's something with my eyes. I'm not sure if I'm losing my mind. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it seems to be completely independent of wherever I look. It seems to hold its place no matter where I, um, where I threw my gaze at the time. It seems to be fixed in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he remarked to me, well, the next time you see something like that, why don't you just think something at it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I began doing that and, uh, that's a whole nother can of worms. But, uh, right. at the initial onset of doing that, I was in my, my shop, which like I say, was more or less like a warehouse garage setting. Uh-huh. And I, I had seen this, I call it a hump in the air, basically moving around. And when I thought something at it, uh, I got a response, which mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. Uh, something that clearly wasn't me. Uh, immediately horrified me because it's not it's not very easy to hear something 
in, in your your own mind that's not you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a that, that's a that's an entirely bizarre, surrealistic feeling in and of itself, and that's only the half of it. Which is the visual that accompanied that was a a being that was, like I said, more or less like your typical gray, right. uh, or how it's described, either rather elongated eyes and fairly large head, very thin. But this one was floating up near the ceiling, which was, I'd say, a good, I don't know, 10 to 15 feet, maybe in the air. Mm-hmm. And the it was very apparition-like. It did not, I, I could not see a lot of its main body. I could see elbows and hands and, and knees and, of course, the face and part of the chest. But a lot of it was just completely not there. Uh, it more or less had a, I don't know, a whitish-bluish hue to it. And uh, and the light source that was in the room or in the shop at the time, which was from large bay windows uh, in the pull-up door, uh, the light was streaming in that direction, and the light that seemed to be illuminating this being hmm. was not the source from where I was. Right. It seemed to have a completely different uh, uh, light source, which I immediately noticed that this just it, it, it just it seemed very ethereal. It seemed very ghost-like, but it also took on this incredibly bizarre look when you're uh-huh. looking at something that has a completely different light source that you can't see. And uh, and it and it spoke, and I of course hmm. freaked. Um, okay. I, 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 I I guess these days, with as much as I've seen, maybe I'd be somewhat more okay with that. I don't know uh, mm-hmm. at this point in my life. Um, uh, so, th- does any of that ring familiar to you? Do you have you had or seen experiences like this that that? You seem to have that 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 voice that seems to speak that you know it's not you, um, and and can't be anticipated and can't be attributed. Just seems completely outside and external of yourself, and it and it comes along with this bizarre type of a vision that is very fixed in reality, <laughs> yeah, or your right that- mind. <laughs> I don't think I myself, was, uh, I can't recall anything like that myself, but people in our group, uh, some have reported similar experiences. So, Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, what do, you, what do you think that that says to us when we're looking at something that is thought by most people to be flesh and blood extraterrestrials, and, right. mm-hmm. and we don't seem to fit with that i mean at least i don't and and from what you're telling me it doesn't seem like that fits i wouldn't i wouldn't pick that if i had to give some kind of explanation at gunpoint i wouldn't give that as an explanation what do you attribute this to i mean what do you think this is doing or or is all about Uh, good question of course and i think that uh, things like you described and things that people have experienced similar to that um they don't necessarily seem to be um, physical as we know physicality all mm-hmm. the time. Um, there seems to be another dimension of their uh, of their being, of their uh, life, of their society, which makes it appear like things like you described and other people described. I think that's the uh, I think it's the thing that uh, is different from our reality. Mm. If I if I said to you that. Um and I've said this for a very, very long time, um, 
and actually at the onset of saying this took mm-hmm. a lot of heat for it. Uh, do you get the idea or the feeling that these beings have a choice as to whether or not to be physical reality or not? Uh, Otherwise, it's like an option for them? Maybe, or maybe it's just natural for them mm-hmm. either way. Yeah. Right, right. I can't say right. for sure because we haven't really asked. <laughs> we haven't yeah, that. right. Well, so, Harold, how, can, I, can I just ask real quick yeah. one question? Uh, when, when you see gnomes and you see shadow people and you see, you know, quote-unquote aliens uh, and you see, uh, you know, animals in single file and all that, do you think that that is all one intelligence acting out in different ways or do you think that gnomes exist, aliens exist, shadow people exist, those animals yeah, were animals? I really don't know. I keep it open because no one knows for sure unless you have like a face-to-face talk with them. Or sit down with coffee, um, with coffee with them, or a beer, whichever the most what I like to do. But it seems to be, uh, oh, chalk the lay and passport to Magonia compared the, uh, the the elf lands and the fairy tales, as similar to the uh, uh, UFO phenomena and the, uh, the beings and and the way that behaves. So I think there's something to that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. So uh, how do you? Um Am, am I understanding right that you've mm-hmm. never really been inherently fearful of these experiences at all? Um, or if you have, how did you, uh, does it become a matter of just simple curiosity for you or the amazement of what you're seeing um, that just kind of transcends the fear for you? Um, good question again. Not really fearful to the point where I don't want the experience. And mm-hmm. that's, so paralyzing fear. Uh, sometimes I have reservations, yes, which I wouldn't describe as a fear exactly, but reservations as to what this all's about. Whitley Strieber, when he learned about the experience we were having in Brewster, suggested that I go out, out alone, separate myself from the, uh, the crowd, the people up there, and go into the woods by myself. He said it was almost certain, at least he thought so, uh, that I would see uh, this female being, as he described it, and um, it would be very gentle and all that. He said, do that. I never did that. <laughs> afraid of bears. <laughs> <laughs> not not afraid of the beings, no, but, mind you, no, but, but bears. bears. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, uh, back when I was doing my own podcast separate from, from Jeremy, we were doing our own at the time, I kind of had that... Um, that idea to kind of go out alone mm-hmm. and and try to document if because uh, I had not had any significant experiences at that point right. in many years um, I, I dropped out of this for a number of years because mm-hmm. of well uh, well for the most part I think it, it largely trampled my life to a large degree and uh, right. and there were also um, some outside um, things that were were going on that um, more or less warned me off of it mm-hmm. uh, and made me fearful enough to walk away from, you know, 10 plus years in it. Right. Uh, when I came back, I was a little, I don't know, I was somewhat reserved because I did find that um, it seemed like the more time that I devoted to it and the more I pondered the really deep questions and not just the, are they real? Are they not real? What are they? but more along the lines of um, uh, what is the relationship to me? Why do I have to see this stuff? Exactly. Why, 
why do people around me have to see this stuff and then not want to hang around with me? Mm. Um, you know, that those kind of questions is when I would get, um, very significant experiences. Um, Mm -hmm. most times when I tell people, uh, or, or when I hear people say that they would love to have experiences like I have, um, the first words out of my mouth is you don't know what you're asking for. And number two, right is that if that's really what you want, the only thing you need to do is to go out and search them out, um, mm-hmm. right. which I don't know anymore. I used to say that really believe that that was solid, but I, I question that these days in that um, I've met a lot of people who said, I've asked these deep questions you talk about. I, I just I continuously say, well, what questions are you asking? And it's the same mundane questions that everyone asks about. Mm-hmm. Uh, this subject and I said no you've got to go to what it means for you it's the questions only you know and the only ones that you will voice right. to yourself yeah. um, and and oddly enough I had some people on my message board at the time who said I can't do this anymore I've never mm-hmm. seen anything in my life and within the past month I've seen four things I can't explain and I feel uncomfortable about this sure. I genuinely thought when I returned to this that everything would come flooding back again, that I would essentially open up that floodgate. Right. And that didn't happen. Hmm. And um, uh, I think since we've been doing this show, I think probably more has has happened, uh, but nothing of the caliber of what I used to experience when I was completely embroiled in the subject in my daily life. Nowadays, right. I, I keep it at arm's length, and I try not to uh, entice it. Um hmm. But I never had the gumption and never had the mm. uh, uh, the guts to go out by myself um, mm. in a particular place where I've had some very significant shared experiences and solitary experiences. Right, um, so I, uh, I felt like, you know, do I do I really want to do this? Do I do I want to do this in the aspect of seeing? Can I force it to interact with me? Can I? Mm-hmm. I, I, am I actually doing something that is bringing this on? And if I go out actively looking, will the phenomena respond to me? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't know if you've ever tried anything like that, um, where you're devoid of anything for a specific period of time, and then actively seek it out. Have you found that, or have you tried that, and does it respond to you in any significant well, way? There are some times when I get tired of it because it's so much it's not oh, yeah. my life because I'm doing other things I can separate things easily pretty much mm-hmm. <clears throat> so sometimes I just get tired of it and want to step back for a while and people do that you know sure sometimes some say sure. step back for a long time as somebody who's stepped back for almost 10 years too and uh, so I like to do that every once in a while take a break right but I don't see anything happening uh, during that time as far as I can think of okay All right um do, oh, sure. Um, well, if not, we'd all be locked up. Um, do you see uh, or do you get anything from these experiences as far as nonsensical words or phrases or anything of that like that, that things that are, are said to you or communicated to you that you just can't even begin to figure out what that's supposed to mean? Uh, not precisely, but an experience that a uh, few of us have had is that this is more like an Alice in Wonderland experience, a nonsensical mm-hmm. element in it. 
And we've been shown that type of Alice Wonderland uh, motif several times in different ways, through synchronicities, uh, mm-hmm. through sightings, through uh, physical things, through uh, uh, study of mythology and archetypes, and things like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Anything in specific that you could recant that, uh, or, or, or relate us that, uh, you know, in specific ways, like exactly what that means? Well, it means, as you said, it's uh, basically nonsense to us. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the uh, the uh, modus operandi of this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Because it seems that way to us, because whoever they are, I don't know who they are, <laughs> right. the answers, um, they operate in a way that doesn't make rational sense, and which has defied uh, the study of most scientists, of course, because of that nature. Uh, whether it's deliberate, I think it's the way they are. Okay. Do you think it? Do you think that that um, goes halfway between us and them, or do you think that that's strictly the way it behaves, and that's the end of it? Do you think there's anything on our end that we're not doing, um, or or I should say that I, I, here lately I've kind of held the, the the thought that perhaps they are whatever they are um, are appearing to us in the only way that they possibly can, and that mm-hmm. we are. They're they're probably on some other level from us and saying, God, these people just can't get it. Um, yeah. You know, they're they're limited by what they can see, so we have to continuously uh, change or refer to myth or make ourselves look like myth so that maybe they'll get a clue. A clue. Um, That's exactly. What I think that happens. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, I mean, I, I I guess the first thing that that comes to mind for me is. Uh, uh, a story I've told a couple of times is uh, seeing a, a man, a, 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 I mean, a man, not a, anything alien or even ghost-like, but a man who just miraculously showed up in the sunroom of uh, a house I used to own, a condominium. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, I, I've personally found that <laughs> that these beings tend to have, uh, in their interactions with me, seem to have a very black, almost weird sense of humor. Um, yeah, at times, it, I think. Yeah. yeah um, not all the time. No, no, definitely not all the time. But sometimes um, it's part of it, yeah. And, and one of the things that was said to me by this man, or the only thing that was said to me was, uh, well, I asked him, I said, are you one of them? Mm-hmm. Uh, to which he just snickered. Um, mm-hmm. And um, uh, he said, the seven rule the nine. And, uh, and that was it. And I took a glance down at the couch and looked back up and it was that quick gone without a sound like or, that. yeah, <laughs> oh, uh, you know, and, and, uh, How did you feel? uh, I think I was pissed off, uh, <laughs> because, um, uh, it was, it was, again, it was, it was one of those kind of fleeting moments where, mm-hmm. I don't think I was inherently afraid. I was, I mean, initially I was extremely startled. uh, But I think one of my first kind of reactions was uh, I need to go over and and, and just bum rush this guy. Mm -hmm. But I slowly found that when I, uh, I essentially got up off the couch and put my hands down on the couch. And that's when I looked over and I Uh kind of felt like I couldn't, I could move, but I didn't want to. (laughs) there, the, the desire to do that was just all of a sudden just taken, and and I couldn't really do anything but stand stooped over, um, 
on the couch in this mm-hmm. odd position while he stood there. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, again, it, it, it's, and, and there's been quite a few of those things that have just been nonsensical, uh, mm-hmm. things that right. don't seem to make any sense at all. And I yeah. continuously look for other people that have had that kind of thing that might have had some success at looking right. up exactly what that might mean or, you know, I, and I've gotten a lot of different emails about that. That there's uh, sure. seven and nine are magical numbers, and mm-hmm. um, you know that uh, there, there's uh, stuff about seven angels and nine demons and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And and uh, but none of that seems to click with me. I just um, right. It it all seems very nonsensical. Um, mm-hmm. So I I I'm completely with you in the Alice in Wonderland thing, which mm-hmm. of course led Jeremy and I. Down the road of uh, of uh, magic mushrooms and Terrence McKenna and all of those sorts of things, which right. hold a lot of parallels to me. Um, Harold, have you ever done hallucinogens? Never. Um, I think the mind itself is a remarkable instrument. Well, yeah. <laughs> Do you think that that your lack of fear is um, maybe due to the fact that that when you were a kid? your wonderment about this was scorned and it was all taken away from you, and so you've been chasing it psychologically ever since. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I knew what I saw, I saw. Uh, I was actually traumatized by the experience, and for years I didn't talk about UFOs to anybody. I talked about the space program, uh, but never mentioned UFOs. I was really afraid to mention. That's where I feared people's reaction. Right, people were the ones who scared you, not the aliens. Yeah, until that... They were the good... <laughs> the thing to right. run into, not the thing to run away from. Right. Huh. So I'm always fascinated, of course, by UFOs. I kept that fascination going. I read a lot of things, and you know, newspaper reports and things like that, uh, TV programs. So that fascinated me. But I was very uh, recalcitrant to uh, speak out. Mm. It's very difficult. <laughs> Did it ever uh, affect any other future relationships you've had? Uh, you mean personal relationships? Yeah. No. Well, that's good. My brother is accepted. Do you see a, a pat? You know, some people make a pattern of this, and then they have like a doomsday scenario for say 2012 or something. Do you have any any feeling that it is building to something at all? Uh, a doomsday scenario? Well, or anything? <laughs> um, again, another good question. It's uh, leading towards something, not necessarily a doomsday scenario attached to any year, because that keeps coming up over the decades. Um, but. Um, there's a feeling that uh, we have a role in this, and what our role is is the things we have to look at, and that's a big boondoggle to get involved with. But um, I do think we have uh, a possible role in this, and uh, people tell me they have a role. They feel they have a role, and they don't necessarily put police systems on it or anything like that. Most people don't that I know, but they feel that we will have some part of whatever comes in the future. Do you feel that? And if so, do you trust it? Uh, not really. Myself, personally. And I wouldn't trust it because it's a supposition. Hmm. To me, for me. Right. Speak for myself. Hmm. Hmm. So I hear it all, all, over and over the years. So. Huh. Well, <sighs> before we move on into John Keel, do you have anything else, Joe? Uh, I'm curious when you... Um, I mean, apparently, there for you, there has been a certain amount of fear attached to this, 
uh, and I'm curious if there was ever a time where you did just uh, essentially throw up your hands and say, okay, I'm here, uh, do what thou will, and, and, and throw caution to the wind. Was there ever a time where you finally just broke down and said, this is it, I either, either acknowledge this, and, uh, um, and of course one of the things I've said for a while is that these, whatever they are, seem to have a deep-seated need to be acknowledged as real. Um, right. Was there ever a time that you finally just threw up your hands and said, the hell with this, I, I'm, I'm going to see it, and I'm going to know it for what it is? Uh, or you remained kind of reserved about how close you will get to it? Yeah, I think our experiences, dozens and dozens of experiences in Brewster, were something of that nature, mm. to seek them out and to see if anything happened in, in whatever ways. And half the times things did happen, not just to myself, but other people up there. Right. And they describe what happened. And uh, half the other times we just had a really good night and we went to Pav's diner. <laughs> <We're really laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. Did you notice anything on the nights that you did experience things up there with people? Was there any sort of common feeling amongst everyone that something was going to happen or... Was it completely a shock and, and completely random as that happened? Uh, mostly it was a recording of our observations. Mm-hmm. and uh, So there wasn't any pre, no preconceived notion of what might happen or no, we what you might see? No, no, no. We would just record our observations and, uh, and make note of what happened. So. I'm also yeah. curious, um, in the way of the support groups um, that you've been involved with, have you ever heard... Or has it been a pervasive thought in the group that um, we shouldn't be talking about this? Uh, no. Hmm. Not really. I think one, uh, at least the three support groups that I've been involved with, that has been kind of a pervasive thought throughout um, the initial meetings and, and the initial mm-hmm. speaking of this is that people at the time felt great to be able to connect with people that had similar experiences as yeah. them and, and get some, some kind of independent confirmation of that. But uh, I, I noticed that on the second meeting, a lot of people came back uh, fairly somber and said, you know, the minute I walked out this door, I felt like I had uh, talked about a secret I shouldn't have talked about or had a, a kind yeah. of a, 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 yeah. a doom type feeling about what they had done. Um, not, not very much. I think there were a couple of incidents that the most, Number three, that's all, handful. Okay, yeah. yeah. We had hundreds of people come through the group. Wow. Okay. Uh, can I ask you for clarity just on one thing? Because um, sure. I'm sure it'll be something that we'll talk about in the after-show discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were under hypnosis, when you were done with hypnosis, um, and you saw yourself on a table or in an easy chair, easy chair. <laughs> with these <laughs> beings, you don't mm-hmm. actually think that that occurred. Uh, I can't say because that's something under uh, hypnosis. I don't trust hypnosis. I think it's more of a uh, an emotional release because the uh, Dr. Gene Monday said while I was under, I was actually shaking and sweating, which I don't remember. <laughs> so the physical reaction and things like that, I think the emotional reactions uh, are more important than what's remembered because I don't think that's a, a total recall. <laughs> so with shaking and sweating, I mean, that would imply fear, right? Uh, maybe. That's what she said. So do you think that there is an unconscious fear that you aren't aware of? 
in all of this? No, no. Huh. That's what you said, right? I think it's because the first I think it's the first time that I did this and I was really scared in a way to be uh, taking this step. Right. So, yeah. Huh. That's so, what really frightened me. What, what do you I, I'm just curious what what do you think did, did you have a feeling while you were under hypnosis that what you cuz I did hypnosis and I had the feeling that what I was seeing was not real. Like I knew that mm-hmm. as I was under. Right. Did you have that feeling as you were under hypnosis that what you were seeing wasn't real? Uh pretty much so. And when I came out of it, I'm used to uh, meditation because I was recommended to me by a doctor in the 1970s as a way to relax and get my blood pressure down. Anyway, uh, so uh, when I came out of it, I said, it doesn't seem real to me. I know what happened. I know what I experienced. And what happened is what I experienced, the, the blue light and everything, and uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, the hour of the wolf. And I forgot to mention during that incident, there was like, like a dog or a wolf howling at the uh, front door. Um, what sounded like a wolf, hmm. scratching and howling, and should have woken everybody up, but apparently did it. Hmm. That spooked me out. <laughs> but uh, I take the incident for what it is. What happened after that when I went right to sleep? Well, do you do you take the totality of the imagery uh, and the things that you heard um, as something that, if you knew how to read it, or if you mm-hmm. knew how to look at it in the right way, that it would tell a story? In a way, it does tell a story. When you put this all together, parts of it do tell a story. That's a whole program in itself. <laughs> well, I mean, beyond <laughs> nonsense, you know, because we were talking about nonsense. Before. It's a nonsensical story, you know, uh, so there are connections. It's an irrational story, maybe. Oh, yes. Yeah. By nature, it's irrational. And that's why science has a hard time looking at it. Well, when we think of irrational, we think of something that is less than rational. Do you think that it is less, or do you think that it is transcendent of, and so... Includes well, it, bits of rationality yeah. and other stuff. We label it. We would label it irrational. There's probably a better term for it. Okay. I think that's our perception. Perceptions are very important. Perceptions that we have, I think it's up to the person themselves to determine what's really going on rather than being told what's going on. So a personal perception of what's going on, I think, is very important. I'm, I'm curious, um, in the outings to the woods with groups of people, uh-huh. uh, did you ever... Did you ever have an experience out there where, of course, it was a shared experience or a shared mm-hmm. sighting where maybe five people saw the same thing and one did not see the same type of object? No, they all saw the same thing when it involved a uh, group sighting. There's no, nobody the uh, seeing it. And we had some people up there, a couple of people, who are not experiencers, and they saw the same thing. Well, hmm. you did say someone saw orange balls of light and you saw rectangles, right? Yeah, rectangular orange they were there so but that would be would that be an example of somebody saw one shape somebody saw another shape but they were both Could be. orange unless it changed well I turned around I don't know I see hmm. yeah. I mean I guess the only other thing no. that I wanted clarity on was when you said that you saw basically the outline of a UFO and you saw some shadowy shapes inside mm-hmm. of it right. uh, were those uh, would you say were those people looking shapes or what what were those shadows uh, no when they formed the uh, uh, change into the shape of hoods and wearing hoods and robes. It seemed like they were really real. They were there. Oh, oh! Uh, I thought you said you saw a UFO in the sky and it was sort of translucent. No, it was on the road. It was on oh, the road. Okay. It was only an outline because we could see, and these uh, forms began appearing one by one inside, kind of grouped together. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Both saw that. 
Uh, so, all right. Now, I guess we kind of, you know, John Keel died this week, so it'd be mm, nice to right. sort of end with, uh, well, I guess it's not a tribute so much as a reflection. <laughs> um, mm. You knew him briefly, yeah? You you met him a few times. What what was what was he like? Yeah, he was an honest person. He was puzzled by the banana. He found it kind of infantile the way it behaves. Uh, he doesn't know what the answer is, but uh, he had his own experiences, and he heard of other experiences, and he gave room for other people to speak about their experiences at his 14th Society meetings here in the uh, city, which were really great. He had uh, everything from Whitley Strieber to Loch Ness Monster Talk and Vampire. <laughs> so he looked at everything, uh, 14, of course. So and he's a really nice man. When I ran into him, I think in the mid-'90s, on uh, uh, Broadway, he would say he was going to lunch, and I said, where are you going to lunch? And I said, Argo. And I was with a friend, and I said, we're going to the Argo, too. So can you join, want to join us? And he said yes, and we talked about things, and he, uh, uh, we talked about the experiences and all that, and he still doesn't know what it is, but it's uh, absurd, basically. Whole <laughs> yeah. And he did uh, good work. He published some really good books. Yeah. yeah. And he basically believed that whatever this thing is, it uh, it conforms and reflects your belief about it, and it sort of turns it up At to a times, point. right, yes, that's uh, a part you, of it. You think that's it? Uh, sometimes, or defies what uh, people think about it. Hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I mean, and that almost is defying in itself. If you become in a completely exaggerated version of what people are thinking, it is. That's that's right. almost that dark humor Jeff is talking about. Yeah. Uh, yep. Well, uh, Jeff, do you have anything? Any no, we're we're definitely going to have this gentleman back again if he'll come. <laughs> oh, I will. Uh, okay. Good. Enjoy talking with both of you. You too. And oh. I should have I should have added that you're also sort of the godfather of the culture of contact. It's not people sometimes I think just think it's me pretending to be the culture of contact, but mm-hmm. no, there's actually other people involved and you were at the forefront of uh, forming this thing. So And you've done a great job, Sam. Thank you for that. Yeah. Oh you're welcome, sure. You do great work. And your uh, program, your ingest program is fantastic and your column is something I read every month oh. or whenever the, whenever it comes out now. Yeah. <laughs> I really like it. You really get, you really say like it is. Thank so, you. You do a good great job on that. Thank you, sir. So. Harold Egeln, as always, a pleasure. Same yes, here. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much, Harold. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. Hi, this is Ted Phillips, and you're listening to Paratopia. Jeff Ritzman. Jeremy Bainey. Ah, the Jeff. Yes, Jeremy. Ah, the Jeff. <laughs> I know you yeah. love it when I call you the Jeff. And do you know why yeah. I call you the Jeff? No. Because I had uh, this Indian landlord who would always call us the Bob, the Dan, and the Jeremy, except that he would never get our names right. Like Bob was the Jeremy and, and I was the Dan. Oh, I thought he maybe called you the, the Festus. <laughs> Tell the Dan that the rent is due. Uh, oh. so, so we sort of have adopted that. Now we all say the before people's names. Okay, well, uh, sorry. The Jeremy, let's get on with the show. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not show. See, now you're doing it. Right. All right, Harold E. Young. Wow. How dare you fucking spank me on air, you... Uh- <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, wow. Um, A lot of stuff there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where do you start? I mean, I 
felt like a complete moron because I, I didn't even know where to start with questions with this. I mean, I sat here trying to take notes on what he was saying, and it was just like one thing after another. And and I think that the the, the three ring circus, you know, portrait of that 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 kind of life is exactly what I talk about when I say my life was a three ring circus. There's so much. How do you, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you talk about it? And, and, uh, uh, in any kind of depth, because if you talk about one thing in any kind of depth, you could talk about it for four hours. Um, so I, 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 I think he's got the same fever as a lot of us have got, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just, not regulated to UFOs and little green men. It's it's all sorts of things. It's poltergeist type activity, ghost activity. It's, it's fairies, wraiths. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's why I said. Did you put? Did you get rid of the ring after that? I mean, uh, you know, it's it's. Um, I mean, it's it's right out of a comic book. Some of the stuff and uh, um, and he, he, I I really wish I'd have thought enough. To stop being so amazed, I gave way to amazement <laughs> um, in that, uh, you know, what goes through your head when you look over and see gnomes and then look over and see a ring wraith standing beside you on a steed? You know, do you think, huh, Tolkien, or what? I mean, what do you think? Uh, well, it's when, funny. He uh, thinks, well, I guess that's real. <laughs> <laughs> now let me get out of here. Yeah, yeah, now let me run. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to run now. Um, uh, I mean, really, I mean, what do you, and, and that is true is like when so many, so many people say like, uh, I mean, people have asked me before, well, when you were followed by certain people, why didn't you call the police? That's not what you're thinking about. (laughs) You know, I, I think rational behavior just goes out the window when some of this stuff happens because, um, it's just so goddamn bizarre. How do you gnomes? I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, what what is that? And here's the thing, because I, I can already hear the cynics out there going, "Oh, this guy's crazy" or whatever. Uh, the dude is has been a reporter and an editing reporter at this uh, at this Brooklyn newspaper. He's been a reporter forever. Uh, mm-hmm. He's been a speechwriter to politicians. The you know he really played down his uh, peace protest stuff because in actuality he was on 2020 and uh, Noam Chomsky uh, wrote to him in support. And so this isn't mm. a guy who needs to make up stuff to feel special. Right. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like this yeah. really is his life. And if you ever meet him in person, you just know, you just, he's just, you take a well, look at him I and mean, you're like, that's the dude who's got these experiences. I think anybody could listen to the show and tell that he's a, a very intelligent man and very thoughtful man when it comes to, how he looks at all of this. He's not, you know, he's not willing to attach any labels at this point because we just don't know enough. And God knows you can respect that. Um, and maybe that's why he sees so much. Maybe so. Uh, uh, he does seem like the type of guy that kind of just has, uh, like he probably doesn't expose himself to a lot of stuff either, that he just kind of lets his head go in the breeze and, what he sees, he sees, and he doesn't have really any, like, uh, like, like with me, I, I've told you with the big glass partition on the back of the house, I often think about when I, you know, get out of my easy chair at 2 a.m. to go get a, a Pepsi or something, I always, I told you when you were here, I always worry about hearing somebody knocking at that door, 
<laughs> you know, and, and what would I do? And I know what I'd do. I'd run the hell upstairs. Um, I mean, I, I think someone like him just kind of doesn't even have that thought. Mm-hmm. Just kind of says, I'm going to get a glass of Pepsi. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. and, and you got to understand, to have these experiences and walk past a darkened window is a challenge. It's not a matter of, I'm going to get a Pepsi. It's, I'm going to get a Pepsi, and will something be at the window when I get there? Right. <laughs> I mean, that's how, that's, 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 you know, for a long while, the mentality I was in. Now I'm pretty much, you know, if I, if I need a Pepsi, I go out to the, the mini fridge out in the studio, and I get it, and I have to walk outside to do it. He's also, I don't, I don't look up. <laughs> isn't he an interesting, interesting to interview because he, he just, uh, you have to draw things out of him and you have to ask him specific yeah. questions. Like if you just asked about hypnosis, you would just be like, oh, okay, here's a dude who has some hypnotically retrieved memories. You have to actually then ask, well, what would you feel about them for him to say, oh, and I didn't believe that they were real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't. That, that part never, it didn't occur to him that that might be the important part of the right. story. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't elaborate a lot, and I think I, I think that. that's well, I think that's a byproduct of not wanting to of wanting to say a lot of things and not wanting to focus on yeah any yeah. one thing uh, too long because, like you say, these these encounters and what you feel from them and what exactly happens and trying to rec- recall that uh, and, and and recite it to paint a picture so that people really get it could take it takes hours to go through your feelings and the feeling in the room and what you felt like and what you were doing. And I mean, he doesn't go into that, that kind of detail. He just tells these stories matter of factly, which is you know, just another hallmark of somebody who's you know, not making up a line of crap to feed you. Um, and, and not trying to get you to subscribe to a, you know, some kind of ass backwards ideology that no one wants to hear about anyway. Right. Uh, this guy is, has had these experiences and doesn't know what to make of them, but it's not, I mean, and I gathered exactly what we talked about before the show is not particularly afraid of them, but has a healthy respect, of, you know, to kind of, I don't know, like he says, take a break every now and then from it and not acknowledge it at all. Right. Which for me, that, that, that sense of leave it alone and it won't bother you pretty much worked for a long time. <laughs> so, um, and that's not to say that as of late, anything's really been going on other than some weird things in the house. But I, I, I think when I asked him about the, 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 you know, the Hanson esque question of what was going on in your life. And he, he was pretty happy at the time, but uh, you know, there was all of this, these things going on that were, were, or seemingly were out of his routine of life. So he kind of said no, but at the same time, then went over what was going on in his life, and it did seem to me to be really out of the normal. Did it not to you? I mean, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really out of the normal. So I think that that the experiences of of uh, you know seventy two definitely seem to be in that kind of transitional state, or that you know betwixt betwixt and between um, <laughs> that that George Hansen talks about, right? Um, so you know, I have to wonder. You can't say that for all no. of the all of his incidents. No, I mean, you no. Can maybe make the case that that that's sort of how it was birthed into his consciousness. But uh, right, right, and I and I I I wonder that a lot about this thing, and um, I, I wonder if this thing doesn't 
go fishing in a sense to kind of throw out a line and see who bites on it. And then whoever bites on it kind of goes along for the ride. The Nancy uh, Burns theory. Real in. Yeah. I mean, kind of like it trolls. Um, um, it, it, it trolls for acknowledgement. And once it gets that acknowledgement, then it seems to come and go as it pleases when it pleases. Um, so I don't know. Uh, he's a fascinating guy, and, and I got to have him back. I mean, we've got to. Well, do you think uh, that um, if you had, um, say, you had that experience with the the being with the hat walks into your room and claps and it makes a gong sound and all that? Yeah, you had that experience. Um, did you go to your parents with that? I don't remember if I did or not. I mean, if you went to your parents with it, if you went to your school with it, and you got kicked out of school for it, and you got chastised. And say the PTA made a big stink about it, and your parents told you you're a fucking asshole. Um, wouldn't these beings who you were just told are your imaginary friends, wouldn't mm. they actually be the loving support system that humans aren't in some way? You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess you're, you're really picking on the only friends I got at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, do I don't you know. Think, do you think that that would be the key to you have seeing this as as I don't want to say positive, but less fearful? All your life, as if if that was the place you turned to. No, I, I think it would have. I think it would have definitely lent me towards the belief that I was not right, that I was uh, either mentally ill or. I, I think the only th- the only thing I remember my mother telling me when I would tell her about the the blue light and the black sheets and that whole scenario between five and nine. She would say that I was dreaming. She'd say that's that's what happened. I don't think anything came in this house and got you. Um, your father and I were here, and we didn't hear or see anything. And uh, and of course, we know, you know, from all the reports and all the accounts out there that, of course, that's how it works um, or seems to work. But um, I remember her saying, you know, some people dream harder than others, and I think. I don't know quite how I rationalized it away, um, the, the whole experience with the guy in the little pointy hat. I really, I don't remember if I said anything to them about that. Uh, I remember much later on in, uh, well, it couldn't have been much later on because I was still in elementary school. I remember talking, I remember that we had a, an older guidance counselor at school. She was elderly. And then she retired, and a really a younger, uh, maybe in her, I don't know, 30s, maybe mid-30s or so, uh, took over her job. And they noticed that, uh, or I think I even mentioned that, that I had a lot of fear in childhood. I, and, and most of that fear originated from these experiences, the aspect of, I, I don't want to say like feelings of isolation, but almost the feeling of... Uh, I used to feel I used to feel very separated from other kids. I what friends I had were very close friends, but I'm not sure quite how to put this. Other than uh, it was almost like in a lot of ways I was afraid of other kids that I didn't know. If I didn't know uh, somebody coming down the hall at me, I immediately felt uh, a sense of fear mm-hmm. uh, of strangers, of people I didn't know. And I remember this guidance counselor asking me, "Well, when did this?" kind of irrational type fear start happening or when did you start feeling afraid of people 
And I started talking about the white square and the black sheets and, you know, uh, how nobody ever believed me. And, um, but it was real and it did happen. And, uh, and this woman just became fascinated with what I was telling her. And uh, before I knew it, I was being pulled out of classes right and left by her to come back and talk about some of these other experiences that had happened. I don't know if I was in fifth or sixth grade, maybe. I, I, I honestly can't remember. But I remember my mother getting very pissed off and saying that, uh, you know, those were dreams. And that woman doesn't need to be dragging you out of class every drop of the hat to talk to you about. There's nothing wrong with you and blah, blah, blah. Um, but this woman listened very intently to what I had to say. And, um, and I asked her one time, I said, have you, has anybody ever, uh, anyone else ever told you this? Or has anyone else ever mentioned anything like this to you? And, and her reply to me was something along the lines of that she had experienced something like this. But I, I don't remember if she ever reca- re- recalled anything to me personally, like telling me a story that had happened to her. But I remember her saying something like, I know how it felt to you, but I really don't think it's real. Uh, or I don't think those things that happen to you are real, and I don't think you have anything to fear if they are. Uh, and, of course, she s- said this in such a way as, a, you know, I don't know, 11 or 12-year-old could understand it, I guess. Um, I, and, again, I, I really, it's been so many years ago, I don't remember exactly how it went, but I do remember telling my mom that I was talking to her about this stuff, and mom getting kind of irate about it, like, you know, what does that have to do with anything? What's that have to do with your schoolwork or any of that? So I don't know. I mean, I don't know why that popped into mind, but I wonder how how many people like that are out there that are guidance counselors at school or psychologists or whatever that are talking to people who are having this experience, and, and those people have had this experience too, but won't talk about it or keep it quiet or... How many kids are are actually dealing with this on some kind of level and don't know how to deal with it and, and later on grow up to be affected by it dramatically? I mean, I, I think I came out pretty pretty okay from it, but... Debatable. It, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I mean, that's that's the one thing from from school that I remember of how I was treated is that this extreme interest was taken for me to talk about these experiences as the root of some of my fears in life uh, of things. And uh, this woman was completely fascinated by it, whether or not she thought I was insane or whether or not she really did have experiences like this and was just desperate to hear someone else talk about it or have a child tell her about it. I don't, I don't know. Cause I, I, like I said, I honestly, I couldn't even tell you her name. It was a very, I would say, a span of maybe two weeks that I was going down and we were talking about these things and, you know, um, and her ultimately saying to me that she had had similar things happen to her, but she didn't base her fear around it and that I had nothing to be afraid of. And she didn't think it was real. Uh, I know how it felt, but it, you know, blah, blah, that kind of thing. So I don't know. I felt at the time better about it for that. For her saying that, so the fact that somebody acknowledged it, like after all this time. Well, this was I, this was going to be my point. This is what is different about a, you know, we'll just use the catch-all phrase abductions or catch-all word, uh, than any psychological trauma that you have, which is with the psychological trauma, um, 
you would work with a shrink or or whatever friends, family, or priest, whatever to get at um, at the root causes of these problems, mm-hmm. and you want them to surface um, and dissipate. And with abductions, you want to be validated, you know. And um, I think well, that is well and that's different. yeah. And but that's not to say that I don't have irrational fears because of this. No, 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 no. no. I'm, not, I'm not getting that. But what I'm saying, well, I'll, I'll just I'll say here's your example. When I was in high school, um, I used to see various counselors and shrinks and whatever because. I got poor grades in school and, you know, my parents had, had divorced when I was in fourth grade. And so, uh, you know, I was molested or they, they had um, been separated when I was in fourth grade and I was uh, or third grade, whatever grade I was in. I don't remember. Right. It's all a blur. Third grade, I think. Yeah. Third grade. Um, and I was molested around the same time. And so, you know, it's like the one, two punch to child psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, my grade slipped. I stopped caring about school and blah, blah, blah. Um, so naturally they send you to a shrink and you, uh, draw pretty pictures and you talk to them and all that. And, you know, I, I, the, the one counselor that I can remember sticking with for the longest, um, you know, I used to talk to him about everything and it was the process of just talking and he wouldn't really give me feedback. He wouldn't say, he wouldn't validate me in any sort of way. He would just sort of let me bounce stuff off of him and, and discover myself for myself. You know, that's sort of one type of therapy. Mm. Um, but one fine day I decided to talk about the abduction experiences and the UFO sightings. Mm. And when he used that same method of not saying anything about it really, but which, which led me to believe, I don't know. how, How do you even put this? It's like, it's like I had no idea whether he believed me or not. And with any other issue that didn't matter. That was never an issue with other, with other issues. Right. It wasn't whether he believed me that I was molested or my parents divorced or whatever. That's not even an issue. And with right. this, I just stopped seeing him. Like, he wasn't non-supportive. He just wasn't supportive in the way that this issue needs to be supported, which is right. validation, you know? Right, right. And I, I don't think I don't think that's something that's ever been said until I just said it now. <laughs> well, well uh, have you... You've been to support groups. You've done that, right? For, um, for, for this... this? Yeah, I mean, you've gone to talks, talk groups, and stuff like that. No, really, really. no, no. I huh. mean, I didn't, I didn't even know that such a thing, you know, existed until I moved to New York. Uh, oh, by then it was too late. <laughs> oh, okay, the craze was over. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, um, then I was fine. Right. Um, no, the most I did was in college. I went and sought out that um, hypnotherapist. Oh, okay. And similar to Harold's in, in, in some sense in that um, I didn't believe anything that, that, that I'd seen. And I told her that. Um, and But yet, you know, I felt like I'd only been out for a little while and I'd actually been out for hours. And at the end of it, she offered me, you know, free therapy. So, so I must have said <laughs> something spectacular that I don't know about. You know, in the same way that Harold is like shaking and sweating and, and all that and having some sort of experience that... She never, she never told you what you said or... No. No, and I never asked, which is completely weird. You should ask. Well, I've since gone back and, and looked her up, and I don't even know. I mean, her phone number has changed, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to get in contact with her. I found it. There, it her name's Barbara Vacar, um, and I did find a Barbara Vacar who is like the chair or somehow uh, involved in a psychology department um, in a New York, New York, in a Massachusetts college. 
Huh. Um, I don't know if it's the same woman. I did email her just in case, but I never heard back. So I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean that'd be interesting to find out what you said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean that's something, and that's something that never even occurred to me until until I did my first radio interview and they asked me what I said and I told them I I didn't know and they were like yeah well, you thought I was the biggest idiot in the world for not asking and then I I guess I just sort of pieced together you know my own thinking on that is that whatever I said she must have given me a post hypnotic suggestion you know some sort of not suggestion to not remember you know because hmm. clearly I was under for deeper and longer than than I realized I was because like I said I was I mean I was at her house all day. Well, I mean, don't they usually do that when it's extremely traumatic? They'll they'll say you're not going to remember this, and they'll, they'll you know they'll 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 plant that suggestion so that you don't. Um, that's what I see in movies, but I don't know if it's real. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, me too. I just uh, remember I remember being out for hours, and then I remember having to take a nap. She made me take a nap, and then I woke up, and her husband came home because uh, it was a sort of a home office thing. So I like slept on her couch, and then her and her husband told me about their experiences. Uh, And his experience was, you know, when he was a kid, he used to think that the Virgin Mary was visiting him. And then he realized through the years that it wasn't wasn't the Virgin Mary picking him up. (laughs) It was whatever this alien thing is. And then they, you know, believe that they were paired and all this sort of stuff. But she was was also a very new agey person. And that that bothered me. Like I felt like she had too much will to believe in anything. And so that was sort of like just ick to me. Um, well, so ultimately, that that was at least my excuse of why I never went back. Huh. But um, I've had, you know, I have some books of hers, and, and the, uh, she let me borrow the Roper pole. Uh, so I have that, and I've always felt guilty about basically having stolen them from her. So I've always wanted to, like, get in contact with her. And get them <laughs> <back>. <laughs> well, I think she would have hunted you down to get them back. But, I mean, to get back to, you know... Would that would that have changed the outlook on on the fear based on what happened to me, you know, in in, in a normal state, I guess, or, or or this reality or whatever you want to call it? No, I don't. I don't think it would have. I mean, would would it did it for you? I mean, did it have any effect on how much fear that you feel with this thing or don't feel? Well, I don't know. I mean, part of my shtick in high school was, you know, I would like put a little note in the strap of my underwear saying, you know, whatever the hell you're doing, please let me know, you know, in the hopes that some alien would read that. Right. Or, uh, you know, run outside in, in my underwear at fucking three in the morning being like, what, you know, just with that, you know, you talk about that feeling of proximity. Yeah. I'd get that feeling of proximity and I'd be like, what the fuck do you, you know, it was that sort of thing. Look to the skies and what do you want with me? And just come, come on, come do it. Right. Um, but, uh, so, so I guess I, I sort of did, I guess my point is that I sort of did, not in the same way that Harold did, but somehow, in some way, did run toward it mm. uh, in wanting to confront it. But I certainly didn't have, you know, parents who would throw away my telescopes and all of my books and all of that. I mean, that to me is just, I mean, that's your entire support system as a kid. I mean, it's yeah. one thing for your mom to say, oh, I think you're fantasy prone. I think you're just dreaming. It's another thing for him to be like, you know, you're you're dirty. <laughs> all of this is bad. Yeah. Um, so I think when all of that becomes bad, but you know that's real, then that must mean that the people around you are not real in some way. There's something completely wrong or inauthentic about them. And I think well, either, either that or it's the aspect of they they don't know what this is, and and I've seen this, and I know it's real, and uh, this is like the big secret, and I've got to know more about it. 
Yeah, I, just I think, think it's very more, enticing. That way, you know. Sure, but I think it's more urgent than that when you're a kid because you need somebody. You need uh, just as a kid, you know. Forget the alien stuff. You need validation as a human being. You know, well, what I mean? sure. and what is the ultimate invalidating experience to have your parents turn on you? Yeah. So that's where pretty... do you go? I mean, who do you go to when your parents and your friends don't believe you and your school has suspended you? I mean, pretty much you're left with yourself and the phenomenon, you know? But would you go to the phenomenon with that? Um, I mean, yeah, because sure. I, think, I think then you're on an eternal quest to, to prove yourself right. He may, he may not say, I never thought okay. I was crazy, but I think as a little kid, you're out to prove you're not crazy to yourself, to those around you. Hmm. I think that becomes the quest. Or else what are you in this world? Well, yeah, I guess that's it. I don't know. I don't know because I didn't have that experience. So I, don't, I don't know how to how to comment on that. Um, have you I, seen my childhood? <laughs> I, I've never, I mean, I've never had that kind of experience with my parents at all. The first sighting that I ever had of anything weird in the sky, I'm pretty sure it was five, maybe six. And uh, I saw the, the, the red, I, I say red metal, but I only say metal because it had a, a gleam to it and seemed to have a seam around the middle, you know, flashing in and out of being visible and invisible or there and not there. Uh, and when it flashed, it, it seemed to be like a cartoon flash, like, you know, when Wile E. Coyote gets hit over the head, that you get that, that spiky burst. That's kind of what it looked like. And I, I remember being so excited. And I remember, and, and here's the funny part is I remember standing out in the driveway at mom and dad's looking at this. And it's, it's, it's literally across the street and over a, a grove of trees that borders onto another house. And, and I remember seeing it. I remember watching this. And I remember someone else being right beside me looking at it. And for the life of me, I can't remember who it is. <laughs> and I, I remember not being, I was not afraid at all. I was absolutely astounded with it. And I ran inside after it flashed and never came back. I ran inside and I said to mom, mom, uh, I just saw a ball in the sky and it didn't move and it wasn't an airplane and it flashed, it would disappear and then it would reappear. You know, and, and I said, I don't know what that was. What do you think that was? And she just turned to me, and I, I, I swear on everything holy, I have never seen my mom act in such a way as she did that very day. And when I think about it, it didn't scare me then. It confused me. But when I think about it now, it terrifies me. She looked at me, and, and she kind of had that look in her eyes like she was blind. Uh, you know how blind people will keep their eyes open, but they can't see anything. She kind of had that look in her eyes, and she says, it was probably a weather balloon. And I think about that now, and I'm thinking, you know, how on earth did she ever think I would know what a weather balloon was at that age? And why would that be the later on? I would I would find out that, that was the uh, you know the Roswell explanation. It was a weather balloon. Uh, it, it kind of became like the sick joke of ufology. Um, and, and I mean. Where do I put that? How do I how do I integrate that other than to say, yeah, it happened, but how do I how do I not get away from the the disturbing aspect that I, I know that was my mother, but I don't think that was her saying that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you do with that? I mean what you know, this is this has been the only single constant thread besides artwork in my life that has been the only thing in my life all my life. Right. Uh, uh, you know, 
what do you do with an experience like that? What 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 is that? I mean, later on, did I see that as a sardonic humor type of thing? Yeah, I did. But for years and years, I thought, yeah, I as a little kid, I saw a UFO, and and then saw one years later, and then saw another one and another one. And I mean, I guess that's what's kind of led me all the way up to this point is you know, the guy finally saying to me, "How many times do you think?" Uh, Normal people see a UFO. Some people go their whole lives and never see it. That's kind of where I got to where I am. But as far as integration that we spoke about with uh, with Harold, I mean, I don't know that saying, yes, it happened, and that's what happened, and that's what it is, I don't know that I can do that. I, I haven't internalized it that way. I, I more or less, I have to, or I have to at least try in some way to make it make sense to me. Right. That, that it's, it's part of something that, it's it's you know I say it's a symptom of something much bigger, but I don't know what the much bigger is. So I'm still I still haven't integrated it per se. I've definitely said yeah it's it's real it happens, but I don't even think people not having the experience even get what that means. I don't think that they understand that that when you see this stuff and it is standing there in front of you or you're in a place that you don't recognize as anything to do with this reality but it feels so much more real i don't think it's i don't think people and that's what i've talked about experiences before with people who've never heard them they said i don't know how you walk around and have a job and a and a and a, a child and a family and i don't know how you even exist uh knowing or seeing this stuff the way that you have i mean what are what's the other option yeah there isn't one. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know how, I guess that's integration, but I don't know how I did it. I don't know what I said to myself other than this happens and I'm not the only one. Uh, that's, is that integration? I don't well, know. Well, I don't know. I mean, but there's also the, the fleeting suspicion that, um, you know, as Harold talked about, uh, it's part of some plan of some sort. You know, you're part of this thing. Um, and not everybody always feels that way, but if, if I think if we're honest with ourselves, we've all felt that at some point at least, you know? Um, so I think some people can hide in that. I, I have often subscribed to the thought that it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I I, I mean, but that uh, also implies that you've often subscribed or sometimes subscribed that it does. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's my old research partner, Lee, and I used to sit around and talk about this for hours on end, and he'd say, you know, have you ever examined the possibility that this is nothing but folly? This is something that fills a space between birth and death um, that, that uh, is nothing but pure wonderment for wonderment's sake, and whatever's doing it, it's nothing but folly. It doesn't mean anything. We're not a part of any great plan. It's just this is what it is, and it does this to amuse us, <laughs> you know, uh, or terrify us, or... That kind of thing. But it does seem, I mean, nowadays, it does seem to have some sort of of uh, direction, at least in, in what I've said time after time that it's done for me is to make me aware of a larger part of life and uh, that, that there's something besides this and, and, and what is all around us all the time that we perceive. Um, I mean, aside from that, I don't know what more really that I've gotten from it. Um, other than a, a good healthy dose of fear, and and I think even that I feel like has broken down in some way recently, uh, you know, within the past you know year. Hmm. I think I've gotten somewhat better about that, but not 
certainly not well enough to even now to go up uh, to that that sacred spot and sit there and wait and watch by myself. Well, I maybe still the key is that you don't go by yourself. I mean, Harold's stuff was all group activity stuff. You know? Well, maybe next time you you come up to to, to bum food off of me and uh, and get a warm <laughs> bed and and your breakfast served your you. Favorite chair, sure. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we, you know, we'll do that, you know. But, of course, my mind says that, hey, the only reason you're asking Jeremy up there is so that uh, you can both uh, have an experience. It's, it's wanting you to come up there with him uh, in an effort to have a two-for-one special. <laughs> going to dine on us? <laughs> well, I didn't say that, but, you know, uh, I, I, I thought about that as Harold was talking about, yeah, we used to get groups of people to go up in this remote spot in the woods and, and just look and make observations. Well, did it maybe never occur to any of them that maybe whoever had the bright idea to go out in the woods was, you know, perhaps somehow being told to, hey, bring lots of people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, because, I mean, the raccoon thing, I find it weird that the eyes are glowing, but if car lights are on, raccoon eyes will glow. Uh, and I personally have seen raccoons travel in a line. That's what they do. Um, if it's a family, if it's babies and mama and dad, uh, they will walk in a line like ducks. Right. Uh, well, he said so I thought they were raccoons. I think, I think it's a chance they might have been raccoons. It was Gene Monday who was saying those weren't raccoons. Right, well... I mean, Gene Monday wasn't there. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think Harold, just listening to him talk, I think he does see this as a multi-level experience, that, you know, he recognizes that he sees something, it's there, that's what he perceives it to be, but he notices something going on underneath of all that. Right. And that's definitely something that I've noticed over the years I've talked about. And uh, Well, this is where I think, like, Native American... Um thinking comes in handy because I wonder if you can read signs in nature, if you have that, that background in animism, uh, that upbringing in it, if all of this doesn't take on a, a different flavor, you know, if, if in fact you don't read signs in things or, or come to understand them, even if it's just some, you know, something subjective. Um, but at least I, I wonder if, if, um, if they, you know, someone from the Lakota wouldn't, uh, wouldn't at least personally understand all of that experience as um, a, a coded message, you know? Well, just nonsense. Well, and also look at how you know they treat all aspects of life, for that matter. I mean, they—I think they openly. I mean, let, let's just say a small Native American boy is uh, happens upon a, a UFO, and, and he has an experience, and he goes back to his mom or his dad and tells them this experience, and. So it, it was it was it was scary, and I was afraid. And and they said, "Well, we know those people; they won't hurt you. You know, they're called this. We know what they are. We here's what they've said to our elders. Here's this. Here's that. They play this part. We play that part. And you're told that from the very first inclination of something like that happening. I I, I can't remember who it was told us that, or maybe it was uh, Graham Hancock at the X conference said, you know. In our culture, if somebody says that they're insane, uh, in a in a, a tribal culture, they 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 recognize that as you had a very special experience, and this means that you have a 
uh, a, a greater part to play later in life, or you were able to see this and interact with it. Therefore, maybe you're, you have shamanistic, uh, you know, qualities about you. Maybe they recognize something. This kind of thing is nurtured by some other cultures. Right. In our culture, it's insane. <laughs> you know, um, and I'm not sure. If, I'm not saying either one is right or wrong. I mean, I, I, I think it's wrong to say people are insane because I, I like to think I'm, I'm okay. But when you're, when you're seeing this whole thing through a very, uh, and the Indi- Indian people, I've always thought of it being very, very pure people. Seeing it through a child's eyes, seeing it through the wonderment rather than what's it going to do to me. That what's it going to do to me is that victimization quality that all of modern life seems to take. Uh, the shape of for us. Uh, I mean, uh, is it going to hurt me? The fear of the unknown and all that kind of stuff. Whereas I think maybe the Native American people take more of a a wonderment about it. Or a, And again, if this reflects what we're thinking or what we're perceiving it to be, then, of course, would they have a much different experience from that? Of course they would. If it's reflecting back what we're thinking about or feeling about it, and your feeling is they're not going to hurt me, they're friendly, they're uh, they'll they'll teach you things. They'll show you things. That's what it's going to be, isn't it? I mean, whether or not that's really what it's all about, who knows? Right. But uh, you're seeing it through a completely different culture, it's a completely different eyes, completely different set of perceptions. If you want to go that far. Yep. 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 I'm tired. And on we go. <laughs> Stuff makes my brain hurt. <laughs> What is it? <laughs> well, you know, there, there's also, you know, in all of that is um, is also that English, as Whitley Strieber has pointed out, is a completely limited language. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just think there are so many, as we know, as this show was formed to explore, uh, so many other avenues uh that we haven't even touched upon that that apply to this you know mm-hmm. you know even just just the very seemingly mundane thing of uh of uh language of of grammar mm-hmm. of you know how words how we how we see in words versus seeing visually um you know and all the different sort of brains that we have some people are you know see the world through the eyes of a mathematician some people are artists you know all of that shades how you uh, or shapes how you would approach this. Uh, I don't know that it shapes how it approaches you. You know, like I, yeah. I almost think that that the language is the language. That it's this holistic. Some of it's visual. It's it, it's it's transrational. Some of it is rational and straightforward language, even if it's telepathic. And some of it is visual, and some of it is read the signs, synchronicities. You know, all of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, that for us is complete overload. I don't know that there's a human culture that can um, translate all of it at once, but I think that there are some that are, are better equipped because just the nature of their language, of their point of view, is more inclusive and less restrictive than, you know, Western mind English. What? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah I, yeah, I do. I, and I think... Uh... I think another avenue that we ought to go down is the the myth avenue. Um, and then wait, uh, once again, I've got to see. I say stuff like that, and then I've got to like differentiate. Well, what's the difference between that and what New Age people think? Uh, the difference is, <laughs> the New Age person will take something from, say, the Lakota. Uh, they'll take the piece of it that they they like, 
and they will apply it to themselves, and they will try to improve their self via this little piece that they heard that they liked that they don't really know anything else about, that they don't understand the richness of because it's not their life experience. Right, and excluding excluding the rest of the picture. Right, exactly, yeah. Just exclude the rest, just take what I like and go. Right, which I think is another problem, another problem of of the Western mind, you know? Um, This whole, you know, self-help versus uh, giving over the self or giving up the self. I think, you know, that's really something that should be Oh, probably debated more in the halls of academia, but but what do I know? I'm just a a small town doctor from a small town, <laughs> right? So I, I think we ought to start looking up people who are steeped in the whole mythology, the gnomes, the fairies, the the fairy rings, all that sort of thing, and um, and look at that. I mean, Valet, when I got the opportunity to speak with him, said that. Um, you know, he saw a lot of this stuff steeped in myth, mythology, and and I, I'm finding I found that particularly when I got interested in that was when I heard Colin Andrews at the X conference talking about you know the fairy rings and the um, and kind of the two together, Hancock and uh, uh, and and Andrews talking about one talking about a fairy ring and people getting drawn into the fairy ring, into fairy world and never be seen again, that type of thing. And then hearing Colin Andrews talk about his research partner being dragged in the middle of a crop circle by some unseen force that he was literally had to pull with all his might to get him away from it. A lot of interesting stuff there uh, that, that we ought to start looking into as well. So, yes. uh, you know, I, I for, for me, after a while, it's, it's, it all just gets to be too much. <laughs> You know, it really does. I mean, even talking with Harold tonight, I'm like, whoa, it's just, it's too much. It's too much. Um, well, that was sort of, a, I mean, I sort of made that all over the place on purpose because I, I wanted, I didn't know if you would blow your mind or if you would think, oh my God, Jeremy's invited a crazy man on here. So I wanted, oh, no, no. I wanted to like puncture, <laughs> you know, through as many uh, of his crazy sounding stories as I know. And, and all of this is not to say that I think he's crazy. I, in case Harold's listening, that that's, I think you know that that's not it at all. I actually, uh, I, I think he is, um, I think he knows more than he's saying. <laughs> and I think everyone who knows him, uh, feels that way about him, but to ask him, he just sort of giggles and says, I don't know why everyone says that. Well, so maybe he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he definitely could elaborate several hours on, on, um, on what he's experienced, and and that's, <sighs> I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately for me, I I hear that, and I'm like, yeah, that's totally it. What is it? You know, I, I just I, I I guess after so long with this, it's just like one thing after another. It starts to repeat itself after a while, and I'm like, okay, where am I going with this? What am I What am I doing? I mean, where where is this heading? Because I. I Again, it just feels like, am I learning anything different here? Am I hearing anything different? Yeah, I'm hearing different things, but it's all leading back to essentially the same thing. What the fuck is it? But I think that's good, because I think that that reminds you that you don't know what it is, and once you're open to the question again, uh, you know, it it changes. (laughs) The game changes. Then you realize, oh, it's just, it's all about the journey, man. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean... There's no answer. Right. I mean, I mean... I think you said something about 
like what Georgia said, like, just give up and you've already lost. <laughs> it's, it's too late. Uh, but yeah, maybe it's not about any answer. Maybe it's about, you know, what, what you come across on the way to, in the looking that, 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 that maybe that's what it's all about. I honestly don't know. I think we'll know when we're dead. Good. That's what I know. Because when you close your eyes for the last time, you'll open them somewhere else, and all these beings will be standing around you going, so how was it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, I don't know. They'll take off their masks, and they'll all look like David Icke. <laughs> and that's all we have for this week, baby. But if you can't get enough of uh, my yapper, well, it won't be my yapper you'll hear, but you'll see me typing, doing the typing. If you want to come come type with me, uh, Tuesday, July 14th at MabusIncarnate.com. That's, uh, well, you can figure out how to spell that. Um, I will be doing a text chat with Greg Bishop. You can come and speak with uh, Greg Bishop. And in the event that you're listening to this and it's after Tuesday and you're like, shucks, Ma, well, the following Tuesday, the 21st of July, I'll be doing a text chat at MavisIncarnate.com with Deb Cobble, formerly Deb Jordan of uh, Bud Hopkins' various works. Uh, so come speak with her. All righty then. I'll be moderating all of that fun. Um, and if you want to learn more about Harold Egelm, it's probably easier to um, Google search him, Harold, uh, Harold, and then Egelm is E-G-E-L-N. Um, otherwise, I will put his links up on our message board. It's just they're, they're very unwieldy. All right, take care. Next week, we shall see you back here on a Friday, much like tonight.